This week, the Down and Nerdy Podcast is brought to you by Claritin D. And shout out to the folks at Claritin who not just sponsored the show, but also provided some samples as well. Tis the season to breathe pollen. Yeah, I've been spending a lot more time outside. Yeah, I can tell those allergies are definitely acting up. I feel stuffy. I feel sluggish. The eyes are starting to water a little bit more. That's why I'm turning to Claritin D. Look, it's definitely helped me relieve my symptoms. It seems to work really, really fast for me as well. It's designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongestion in your nose so you can breathe better. And hey, I'm noticing a lot of that right now. As a matter of fact, I'm looking forward to be able to enjoy much more outdoor time this spring and summer. A lot of that has to do with Claritin D. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom, it's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. This week, we're serving out the rest of our set. This is episode 394 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and I say that because we're going back to talk about the mayor of Kingstown from Paramount+. Plus. You've seen the first couple of episodes. You heard my interviews last week. So this week, I'm going to talk to executive producer David Glasser to get even more inside info on the series, maybe tease ahead a little bit, talk about some of the bigger moments from the first couple of episodes. So there will be some spoilers involved there. There's going to be a lot of great things that we're going to talk about with David Glasser. Also, speaking of great things, another massive review week. I'm finally going to give my review of Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings. You know, The Flash started its eighth season with the big Armageddon. Not a crossover, apparently, but I'll give you my spoiler-filled review of that. Also, The Wheel of Time starting on Amazon Prime Video. We'll talk about that. And there's, of course, going to talk about the Spider-Man No Way Home trailer and maybe a few other things as well. But it's time to get started with executive producer David Glasser of the Mayor of Kingstown. Our interview with him is next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Nelson Lee from DC Stargirl, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. David Glasser, executive producer of Mayor of Kingstown, joining me. David, I, I really, really love the show. I especially really loved in the early going the, the, the dynamic between this McCluskey family. So how would you kind of describe that uh, family dynamic? Because I think it's a really interesting one that you guys put together. Well, thank you. I mean, first of all, and, and thanks for having me. You know, the thing about it is Taylor is such a world builder, right? And to establish a world like this, and this is something he had developed sort of early on, you know, you have to sort of see it through a point of view. And and, and what he does is he gives you many points of view, obviously, in the show. But obviously, the key is the McCluskey family, you know, obviously led by Jeremy Renner's character. And, and Diane Weiss in this sort of incredible you know, family dynamic. And I think what's interesting is it sort of gives you the point of view from the family, but also gives you the point of view, you know, Taylor serves it up to you, you know, very sort of 
black and white and, and, and sort of everything across the board, you know, sort of you bumps, bruises and all. And he doesn't hold back from anything. And I think that's an incredible, you know, incredible way to look at things. Getting into a little bit of spoiler territory here. So a little spoiler alert for anybody that might not have seen one and two. There was something and I can't say this very often, David, but the, the, the what happened in episode one with Mitch's death, I honestly did not see that coming. I thought that was a huge, huge surprise. <laughs> talk about the how, how talk about how did you guys really want to just make that impact right away? And what did that actually do? Because I actually think that that helped define what Mike's character really was as well. A hundred percent. And that's exactly what Taylor set out for. I mean, what you're feeling, seeing and going with is a hundred percent what he was going for. You know, the way he cast it and the way we wanted it was you sort of go into it and you understand from that moment on, right, anything can happen in this show. And and it really defined Mike because you sort of think it's going to be a two hander. And then obviously this you know twist comes and you don't see it coming. Yeah, you absolutely don't. I, I didn't for a second. Never thought for a second that he would pull the trigger. And kind of out of that, we, we, we know what's going on with Milo and everything like that. And then we see in episode two, we see Emma come into the picture. We don't really learn a whole lot about Emma in the first two episodes. So what's the most interesting thing about this character and how much more are we going to learn about her as we get going here? So she's going to be obviously a vital character through the whole show. We'll start to, you know, see a lot more about her. And, and not to give away any spoilers, but I think the incredible thing about her sort of journey is, you know, she becomes, you know, sort of see her come in. And and obviously, as we follow her on this journey, you know, you know, we see her sort of the trials and tribulations of what she goes through. But then there's sort of a very poetic, poetic way she sort of comes to at the end of the series. So it's going to be really a, a beautiful and, and, and tragic and tough and you know, all of those sort of emotions come together, like very mixed about, you know, everything that she's going to sort of go through. But at the end of the day, there's a through line for her and we'll sort of see it. And I think as much as you were surprised in sort of episode one, you'll see the same thing with her as she sort of goes on her journey. And, and that's one thing that Taylor does right through everybody's eyes. You're seeing this incredible, you know, sort of world and town and family and dynamic and you're looking at it at all times from everybody's point of view. So speaking of the family, of course, we've got the matriarch who's played by Miriam, played by Diane Weist, who does such a fantastic <laughs> job. And I asked Diane about this, and I wanted to ask you about this. Talk about is the, the guilt that maybe she's dealing with. She saw her husband go through this. And now she's seeing her sons go through this. How, how much does she, do you think she blames herself for what's going on and, and, you know, fair or unfair in that regard? You know, I think it's obviously a very, very interesting sort of, catbird seat shall we say that she sits at right she's seen obviously her husband and now sort of handed down to the next generation in the family right and she's got as you know and as you will learn you know jeremy obviously has a past you know and, and, and mike has a past there for for where he's been and what's gone on so she's been through it right and and i think there's part of her that knows that this is the the, the make of the family this is the way of the world this is the town they live in this is survival at the same time, I'm sure she would love to see them, you know, follow a different path, right? To, as we always say, break the chain. And so I think she's conflicted that she, you know, can't do more and, and that she's sort of sitting on the outside, you know, watching it all happen. I think she's also on the inside at the end of the day, too, because she's working inside the prison system, as you'll see later on. And, and so she's in the system and she knows what's going on and she's dealing with these prisoners directly. 
So she really has an interesting perspective from where she sits because she has the family dynamic, but she's also seen it from inside the prison and in trying to find hope and, you know, and some kind of levity and some kind of ability for redemption for these prisoners and for, for everybody that uh, is in this world. Most definitely. Um, David, there was a line from episode one that really stuck with me, and it was really quick. It was something that Bunny said to Mitch. He said, if it wasn't for you guys, everybody here would be dead. And I really thought that that was a profound line that maybe kind of gets lost on the shuffle of everything that's going on. So I want to take that line and tell me, now that Mitch is gone, how much are we going to see the pressure of that play out in this first season? Well, I think that's actually a really great line if anything you might even see it as like would be great right as a tagline for the marketing right because it's so true that is what you're going to see you're going to really see the mccluskey family hold this town together and get deeper and deeper into it at the same time while trying to get out of it so it's a very interesting as i said you know taylor doesn't hold back he gives it to you he gives you everything top to bottom and i think that's the exciting part about it so you know and so yeah that line is going to be a through line to the show no question interesting that you picked it up and it it's a very true statement of our show david before i let you go we've seen a lot of character building in these first couple of episodes and i think that that's really really great we've really gotten to dig in to so many of these wonderful characters but i think the town itself is going to be of kingstown is going to be really really important too how much are we going to see in this first season about how the town perceives this mccluskey family and what they're doing because i'm guessing everybody's pretty much consciously aware of what's going on absolutely and you're going to see that right you're going to see between the prison the McCluskey family, the police force, you're going to see this sort of world as to everything that goes on. And you'll see it as you come up in, in episodes of just how all the relationships work and the sort of power of the McCluskey family within this town. So, And the town itself, as you know, plays an important character. The prison plays a huge character in this show. And Taylor went to a painstaking task to get that right and to find the right place that would sort of send the message so you really understand what this town is like. And if you've already seen the first two episodes, you already know what's going on. Mayor of Kingstown has already premiered premiered on November the 14th on Paramount+. Plus. You'll get episodes weekly after that. It's going to be an incredible first season. Executive producer David Glasser, thank you so much for taking the time with me today. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. An absolute pleasure. And still, looking back on it again in those first couple of episodes, the depth of this show blows my mind and how important so many different characters are. And that's classic Taylor Sheridan though, right? But there's just so much about the mayor of Kingstown that I want to pay attention to. And how many series can you say that about? And yet there's still so many, so much mystery and intrigue that, of things that we don't even know about yet. After these first couple of episodes, this just feels like a show that's going to be appointment viewing. And I usually hate that term, but one of those shows that every Sunday you're waiting for that new episode to drop because you've just got to see what happens. So make sure you're watching the Mayor of Kingstown episodes being now released weekly on Paramount+. Plus. Thanks again to David Glasser for joining me to talk once again about the Mayor of Kingstown. Up next, it's time to give my spoiler-filled review of Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. I'll do that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Cassia Tellis from The 100, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. One of my favorite things about Disney Plus Day was the chance to finally get to watch Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Yep, didn't see it in theaters, waited for the Disney Plus release, and I'm not sorry, actually, that I waited. 
even though it was an amazing, amazing movie. Spoiler-filled review coming up here. So, yes, spoilers from here on out since you've probably already seen it yourself. And I got to say that not that the MCU ever lost its way, but it's like they remembered what the key ingredient was to what made a great Marvel Studios film because it's exactly what Shang-Chi was. And I mean, I think this is a timely review. I mean, if the bus driver can give their review of that bus fight scene, which is hilarious, by the way, then yes, I can give my review now as well. So here we go. One of the things that I really, really loved about Shang-Chi right off the bat was that they have the great mix of action and family drama and a lot of humor thrown in there as well. A lot of that, of course, is brought by Aquafina, who plays Katie. But speaking of Katie, wasn't it really refreshing to see her relationship with Sean, a.k.a. Shang-Chi, as more of like a platonic friendship than a forced relationship sort of thing? Because a lot of times you see stuff in, on screen that's, you know, the relationship ultimately ends up getting forced between the male and the female characters. And that's not what we see here. Yeah, the family brings it up, but that's some more of a cultural thing, right? And and that was part of why that was included. That scene was included. But then you've got Shang-Chi and Katie, and they're just, you know, such good platonic friends. Now, will it become more than that at some point? Maybe. You know, these characters will be together again at some point. But for now, I just found it was it was just refreshing to not focus on that, really. And just the fact that they are friends and, you know, stand by each other through thick and thin sort of thing. I really, really enjoyed that. And I do have to say that the family drama in this is really, really good. And I'm just going to call Shang-Chi's dad the Mandarin. I know he's a man of many names, but we're, we're going to go with Mandarin for now anytime I, I reference him. So here's the deal. The fact that they managed to take the Mandarin character and, and they show him as an evil dude, and he is an evil dude, running a crime syndicate and trying to conquer the world one generation at a time sort of thing. But at the end of the day, when you see him turn that corner, when he meets their mother and sort of starts becoming that husband, becoming that dad, then he loses his wife, and that's when he loses his way again. And what he wants is, foolishly or not, to save his wife from what he thinks is this, you know, magical wall sort of thing. And his wife's behind it. And then her people, because they rejected him, took her back to her mystical village and just won't let her out sort of thing. Now, was that misguided? Absolutely. But at the same time, that pain and that loss driving him to do that was very, very, uh, I again, misguided, but it almost made you feel for him a little bit. Normally, I hate making the villain sympathetic, but in this case, you can't help but feel a little sympathy for the dude, right? Now, I understand, you know, you abandon your children sort of things. Like Shang-Chi says in the movie, you chose the rings over us. Not cool. But his drive is not completely through evil, like you see from a lot of villains. So I thought that was interesting. And then you get that redeeming moment where he gives up the rings to his son at the end so he can save himself. Again, not quite enough, right? I think, you know, like Darth Vader throwing the Emperor in the giant in that in that giant pit of the Death Star, that was, you know, more of a gesture than than what Shang-Chi's dad did 
but at the same time, a redeeming factor nonetheless. And there's and there's closure in that scene too for Shang Chi. Now, did Jialin get the same closure, Shang Chi's sister? I don't know if she did or not, but you certainly see there's a moving on point there. And I also, you know, that relationship between Shang Shang Chi and his sister Jialin was also a very uneasy one. And you understand again where she's coming from and just how complicated this family really, really gets. But can we just acknowledge that Michelle Yeoh, who plays Ying Nan, is just, that woman is a treasure in everything she's in, isn't she? Like, how is that possible for her to be so good and so compelling in pretty much every role that she's in? And of course, she's the aunt in this situation, right? And sort of the new leader of this village or figurehead of the village anyway. Maybe leader's not the best way to put it. But I love that she just brings that presence and she finds a way to just sort of bring these two broken siblings together in Shang-Chi and Ling. She just brings them together. And then by extension, just from being in this place, you know, Katie transforms herself and becomes not a complete warrior, but at least the start of one anyway, and finding some sort of purpose in life that she might have lacked before. I mean, same with Shang-Chi, but definitely for Katie as well. And all of that was the catalyst for what Yingnan did when she met them for that first time. And maybe that's a little heavy handed on my part, but that's just kind of how I saw it. And then you see how it plays out from there where they end up defending the village against the oncoming Ten Rings army led by the Mandarin. So I, that, and that fight scene was just incredible and just stunning visuals throughout this movie, not just the mystical creatures that we get to meet, but the, all the, the camera work and the effects work with the rings and some of the fight scenes as well, not just on the bus, but some of the others, like the one that was on the side of the building as well, I thought was really, really neat. And, and the humor in this movie really, really sold it for me. Like when we see Razor Fist's car, I loved that. That, that, that definitely had me howling. And the Death Dealer, who's played by Andy Lee, well done there. If you're going to have somebody run a fight ring, I want it to be that dude. And then bringing Trevor Slattery back, Ben Kingsley's character, and making it make sense, too, by the way. You remember that short, right, where he gets captured and you don't know what happens to him? So the fact that we get to find out what happens to him and have that whole thing come full circle was so, so great. If you're a longtime MCU fan, you definitely appreciated that. And then, of course, you see the post-credit scenes and mid-credit scene where you've got Wong trying to figure out, you know, the origin of these rings and how old they really are. We see we see Brie Larson's Captain Marvel and Bruce Banner, played by Mark Ruffalo. We see them. And then we also see at the end, at the very end credits, where we see Zhai Ling, who is supposed to be dismantling her father's business, maybe instead taking it over. Now, does that mean that She's going to go full evil? Don't know. Maybe. It's certainly possible. Is she going to take the organization and turn them into something for good? Also maybe. Also possible. But maybe that's something we'll have to be exploring in a sequel down the line at some point. I'm sure there'll be more, some more karaoke, too, at some point down the line. But this, there were so many enjoyable things. About this movie, I love the fact that we don't see Shang-Chi get the rings until towards the end 
of the movie, so it's not all about that. And I find it fascinating that they decided to go with the whole let's not make this about the rings thing. I mean, it was about the rings because they were one of the things that drove that family apart. But at the same time, it's not like it was a whole movie about discovering what the rings were and discovering what their power was and how Shang-Chi was going to use it. Instead, you focused on the family drama. You focused on the culture as well. And that was really, really, and the action. And that was really a home run as far as I'm concerned. So Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, definitely up there, quite frankly, as one of the better Marvel Studios movies and, and certainly one of the better origin movies and debut movies as well. And Simu Liu, a fantastic job as Shang-Chi as well, and a great cast. And quite frankly, I can't wait to see more. So great job by everyone involved. That'll do it for my spoiler-filled review of Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings, which is now available on Disney+, Plus as well as Digital HD. Up next, how about we talk about The Flash Season 8 premiere? It's Armageddon. We'll get into it next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. This is Matt Lesher from The Flash and Legends of Tomorrow, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Armageddon has come to Central City. Season 8 of The Flash has begun with the big Armageddon event, not a crossover, as we've been told but we are seeing some familiar faces. So my spoiler-filled review of The Flash Season 8 premiere, and we do see Despero show up on the scene, but not before we see a future-forward vision of some sort of destruction in Central City. And supposedly, if you're listening to Despero, and I mean, I don't know why you would at this point, but I mean, it seems like it's right there, doesn't it, that The Flash was the cause of this, but and again, major spoilers here in this review. My my thing was, and I'm going to bounce around this episode. It's not like we're going to go in order. When have I ever gone in order? So my biggest surprise in this episode was when Barry reveals himself to Despero as Barry Allen. You know, throwing back the curtain on his secret identity, which Barry's done many times before. Despero doesn't know, or at least doesn't appear to know. The Barry Allen is the Flash. And then he's the whole, you know, you have seven days to get your affairs in order sort of thing. I know that was a horrible impression. Well, not what I was going for. But it's, I found that interesting. That seems like that was information that I expected him to have. And the fact that he didn't tells me that it could have been any speedster in the Flash suit. Right. Or it could could have been 
another Flash. So it's not necessarily even Barry Allen. I mean, if you know anything about the Flash, there's several Flashes that it could possibly be, right? Especially in the year 2031. And we don't actually see this Flash's face in this future shot that we get. It's just that red suit, that iconic red suit that you expect to see. So is it Barry? Is it not Barry? That's the biggest question that I had coming into this thing. And it's funny, even Barry says to Despero, you know, what if you're wrong, dude? You're trying to kill me to prevent something that happens in the future. But what if you're wrong? What if it's not me and it still happens? What, are you just going to take an innocent life? Which, again, you know, like any villain, he didn't seem very concerned about. You know, it's almost like the, the ends justify the means sort of thing. You know, it's, that's the kind of thing you run into a lot in society at any point. So, and, you know, maybe to a certain extent you might agree with Despero. I'm sure that likely you probably don't. I certainly don't. So it, it, it sets up a very intriguing premise going forward. But then you go back to the nuts and bolts of the episode and what's going on with the team. Barry seems more Zen Barry than ever, right? It seems like this is the most at peace Barry has been with himself and being the Flash than he ever has been before. And I mean, part of that is what happened in the season finale of season seven. But part of that is also, I think he just feels like his life is in order. His team is in order. And while there were some sad moments last season, everything is at peace now. And you see that. And it's not just the confidence. It's the coolness in him. But we're not used to seeing, especially early on. In seasons, right? Barry's been a mess recently in the beginnings of seasons. And now it looks like he's very much not a mess. And I mean, everything's going well with Iris at the Citizen as well. And now Allegra is going to be an editor. And we see how she kind of, you know, takes that role, even though she thought she wasn't ready. Iris said she was. So bigger things coming from Allegra this season. I loved Chester meeting Ray Palmer. That was a dynamic I was really hoping to see in this crossover, and we did. You know, there was a little bit of friction there at one point, but that certainly ended up working itself out. Anytime you can get Brandon Routh on your show for any reason whatsoever, he just brings that. I never knew I could love the character of Ray Palmer so much, and then here comes Brandon Routh to prove, prove me wrong. So anytime you want to get the Adam on the show, I'm all for that. And him being a key reason why Barry survives the first Despero attack, I thought was pretty good too, because you know, it's like, Hey, you could take the suit out of the, away from the Adam, but you can't take the Adam out of the suit sort of thing. And he just rage just sort of dives right in and saves the day, which is amazing. Plus I always thought that Brandon Routh and Grant Gustin played well, off of each other anytime they were they were doing scenes together or they were in episodes together I thought they played really well off of each other now there were some sleepy moments in this premiere where I thought it dragged on a little bit I I still think we're doing the whole you know we're gonna take we're gonna kill Barry and take his entire life away sort of thing you know destroy his world I think that we do that a lot on the flash, but me, I mean, maybe that's just the premise for a villain, right? I, I don't know that they're, they're not necessarily reinventing the wheel here, 
but they're definitely giving us a, a, a you know, it's, it's like looking at new rims and saying, hey, where did you get those sort of thing? Because they're not your, you're, they're not your typical things that you'd see on the street. You know, maybe they, it's the ones like, like the lights or the spinners in them. So they're still rims. They still move the vehicle. But at the same time, there's something about them that you're not quite sure about and you need to understand before you can go forward. Maybe that's a horrible example. But what I'm saying is, is that while you're getting some typical villain vibes, there's still something that you, you've, that's a little off that not just we're trying to figure out as viewers, but also as the, you know, the, the team's trying to figure out exactly what is going on with Despero as well. And quite frankly, is he telling the truth or isn't he? And if he is, what would drive Barry to do something like that? So we haven't seen, we didn't see anybody else come into the fold yet. We know we'll see Batwoman at some point. We know we'll see Black Lightning. We'll, we know that we'll see Alex Danvers and so on and so forth. How do they fit into this? Where do they come in? And what is the deal with Mia Queen being a part of this as well? Because I think that might be a really, really interesting aspect, especially when the producers are saying to watch the Green Arrow and, Green Arrow and the Canaries pilot. There has to be a reason for that. We'll just see how it all plays out. Season 8 of The Flash, of course, is going to be airing every Tuesday on The CW. Moving to Wednesday, though, at some point. So just keep that in mind as we head in to midseason. But Armageddon not didn't blow me away, but definitely an interesting premise to start things off. Again, that'll do it for my spoiler-filled review of the Season 8 premiere of The Flash, Armageddon. Up next, speaking of premieres, The Wheel of Time is now on Amazon Prime Video. I'll give you my spoiler-free reaction to the first few episodes next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Malcolm Barrett from Timeless, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Magic in an ancient prophecy. What else do we need? It is the Wheel of Time from Amazon Prime Video, and I'm going to give my spoiler-free review because only the first three episodes are out, first of all. Second of all, I mean, it just seems wrong to, to spoil any of this since it just dropped on November the 19th, which is a Friday, and these podcasts come on on Friday, so I'm not going to be the guy that spoils it for you. Only the first three episodes are out. So here's the gist of the story. It follows... A woman named Maureen, who is played by Rosamund Pike. And she's basically, she shows up at this village called Two Rivers. It's called Two Rivers for a reason. I'll give you two guesses as to what that is. Yeah, I don't think you really need that much time. But basically what she's looking for is someone that is linked to a prophecy of this dragon. And the the dragon being a person. And the dragon reborn is who she's looking for in this prophecy. This is someone who will either save or destroy humanity. And there's no really real way to know. But she is tasked with finding this person and not necessarily killing them, but certainly keeping an eye on them and keeping them close to the vest sort of thing. So that's how she ends up at the village of Two Rivers. We see the, you know, the, the search performed before that, but basically she arrives at Two Rivers to try and figure out if she can find this dragon reborn. And once she gets there, she finds a very interesting mix of characters. But it would, at the same time, it, there's a, it's a very typical village. And this is a world where magic exists, mostly for women. There's some men that have this magic. But we see that women predominantly are the ones that have the magic. And one of the focuses of this 
series is on a woman named Igwen, who is played by Madeline Madden, who does a very good job, by the way. And she's fairly new to this whole magic thing. And you get to see her little indoctrination into womanhood, for lack of a better way of putting it. And then you also have the three men that are in the that are a part of this. You've got Randall Thor, who is her love interest, who played by Joshua Stradowski. You've also got Perrin, who's played by Marcus Rutherford, who's kind of the married guy. You know, he's settled in. And then you've got Matt Carthon, who's played by Barney Harris, who's kind of the loose cannon of the group. I say loose cannon. I don't want to say the word loser because I don't think he's a loser. But you know, he's like he's a gambler. He doesn't really have his life straight sort of thing. He's not sure exactly what he wants to do and who he wants to be sort of thing. So any any kind of comes from a, a bit of a difficult family background as well that, that we can see in this, at least in the first episode. Anyway, and let, let's just say that this village changes dramatically based on Moraine's arrival. And then that's really right after the first episode is where things the story really starts to kick off with their journey. Now, here's the thing. The first episode's a lot of setup, and I mean a lot. It introduces you to a lot of characters. There's certainly plenty of stuff that you need to follow in this first episode, and then there's a very dramatic sequence towards the end, and then it's like, okay, here we go. So in it, it certainly follows the pattern, of certain fantasy, you know, movies or series that we've seen in the past. I'm not sure that the Wheel of Time breaks a ton of new ground in these early episodes. Now, certainly there's plenty of the onion to peel in these remaining episodes. And of course, the there's the the books have a huge huge following, and I totally understand that, but you know me, I'm not the guy that's going to tell you, you know, well, here's this was just like the book and or this was totally away from the book. You know, I'm not here to compare because I, I, I like to let the shows stand on their own. But I will say that as I was watching this, I don't know that I was really expecting to be wowed. I don't know if I was, if that was like a demand of mine that, that I'd be wowed by this. I just did nothing reached out and grabbed me about this show. Now, is there plenty of mystery surrounding Moraine? Absolutely. Is there plenty of mystery surrounding Lan, who is kind of accompanying her on this mission? Yes, absolutely there is. And the, the, the characters that are, the, the younger characters that she brings with them, and the Dragon Reborn, and who is it sort of thing, the, there's nothing wrong with them. But nothing jumps out to me about them either. There are certain characters in like fantasy stories and things like that, that you're drawn to immediately. And as much as I told myself I wasn't going to make this comparison, I have to be in the sense in that when you're watching Lord of the Rings and you meet Frodo, you're drawn to Frodo immediately, I feel like, right? Whereas with this, I don't really feel like I was drawn to a particular character immediately. And I'm like, that's who I'm rooting for. That's the person I want to follow. That's the one I want to see. And then Lord of the Rings eventually introduced more characters that you felt that way about, right? I don't feel that way initially about the Wheel of Time. Now, could that change after? I mean, I mean, it's hard to judge anything like this on three episodes. I feel like this is going to be a slow burn type of series. And and was it beautifully shot? Absolutely. Was there were there some epic 
action sequences in this in these early episodes? Absolutely, no question about that. It's visually stunning. There's some good special effects, some good action, and the story is definitely there. But these characters don't grab me right now. And and I will definitely have to do an updated review of this because again, it's not don't don't get me wrong here. It's, it's I'm not sitting up here saying that I hated the thing. I actually enjoyed it. I was just waiting to be wowed and that wow moment never really came for me. And maybe that's not fair to judge in three episodes. So here's what I'll do is we'll wait a few more episodes, revisit this in December and see where we're at with the Wheel of Time on Amazon Prime Video. That's going to do it for my spoiler-free review of the Wheel of Time on Amazon Prime Video, the first few episodes. Anyway, up next, there is still some nerd news that we want to talk about. I'm James Witham, and this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Artis Picosio, artist of Revolutionaries, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Get out the fine-tooth comb and the video capture software. It's time for nerd news, and I say that because yet another Spider-Man No Way Home trailer dropped this past week, and that means fans digging for Easter eggs and trying to find like little reflections in things of something that they might be able to confirm a spoiler in and all this other stuff. Now, granted, they, there have been plenty of Easter eggs hidden in past trailers, some of which ended up being true. I should point out that Spider-Man No Way Home is going to be coming to theaters on December the 17th because I know I'm going to forget to say that later. And what we did get confirmation of in this second trailer is we get confirmation of Green Goblin with William Willem Dafoe. So that was really, really cool. We've got Lizard that's definitely going to be back. we got Sandman that's going to be back. We already knew about Doc Ock. But here's my most important moment in this trailer. And one thing that adds a lot of intrigue is that it's not just going to be this multiversal rift where these villains come through and just automatically start going after Peter Parker slash Spider-Man. It was when Doc Ock says, you're not Peter Parker to Tom Holland's Peter Parker. And I was thinking to myself, that's interesting because he doesn't know that that's Peter Parker. So that really adds the intrigue to me that it's not just he's not just there to just kill Spider-Man regardless, right? And we knew that from go, going back to Spider-Man 2, you realize what Doc Ock's beef is with Peter Parker slash Spider-Man, right? You, you understand that. And you, again, should he be doing the things he's doing? Absolutely not. But you understand his motives and where he's coming from anyway, right? So he's not just here to chop the head off of every Spider-Man that he sees. Now, is that true of Green Goblin? I would say that Green Goblin doesn't care that much which Spider-Man it is. He just wants to kill Spider-Man. Electro, same thing. So... What we're seeing is is that maybe Doc Ock will be an interesting, I don't necessarily want to say ally, because I don't think that they'll ever be allies, but it's certainly someone who, as a scientist, would be interested in what's going on here and a way to maybe go back to where he came from so he can settle the score that he wants to settle sort of thing. And then there's the intrigue between Spider-Man and Doctor Strange, where Doctor Strange says all these guys died be, by by fighting Spider-Man or facing off against Spider-Man. And he says that's the only way. And of course, young Peter's not going to go for the whole let's kill all these dudes thing. But Dr. Strange seems to think there's the only way. And you've always got the guy 
that wants to protect the multiverse at all costs. And it looks like Stephen Strange is that guy. So then that's how the tension happens between the two of them. Now, does this feel like the last hurrah for Tom Holland Spider-Man? It almost does. I mean, I, I've had a theory that eventually we'll have Miles Morales in the MCU and that Tom Holland Spider-Man will eventually will, will maybe go away after this movie or at least be in another universe for whatever reason. And, and it's I, I can't really explain the whole thing through again. You'll have to listen to a pod, pad, the, one of the past podcasts where I kind of go in depth into that. I don't want to go into the whole thing again. But it seems like that's something that we're trending towards. We're trending towards a new Spider-Man. I, I don't know that we'll see Andrew Garfield or Toby, Toby Maguire. It seems like we probably will, especially when you see MJ in the trailer, Zendaya's MJ, and she's kind of having that Gwen Stacy moment where you see her falling and it's that classic scene, right? I'm just waiting for Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man to kind of swoop in, kind of catch her and be like, nope, I'm not letting this happen again, sort of thing. And was were they going to reveal that in the trailer? Absolutely not. Here's the thing you have to understand. There has to be some mystery left. I understand this is what we do, right? You look for clues in trailers. You get excited about trailers. I'm excited about it too. But would you really want this trailer to reveal everything? Would you really want every character to be revealed in these trailers? I wouldn't. That that was another thing that drove me crazy about all the Star Wars trailers when these new Star Wars movies were coming out. It's like, do you really want to see all of these things in the trailers and then you've got nothing to look forward to, nothing to show for it. I don't. So I hope they do keep as much mystery as possible in in these upcoming trailers. I was kind of hoping they wouldn't do any trailers at all. That way we go into it completely cold, but that's ridiculous. I knew that realistically that's not going to happen. All I'm saying is, is that I get the excitement and I admire the passion of anybody that wants to you know, just comb through these trailers and try and find little secrets. I do love that. I really do enjoy it. But at the same time, let's leave a little bit of mystery. huh? And maybe you'll be right, maybe you'll be wrong about certain theories, but also don't let that ruin it for you if you expect a certain character to be... Like the whole Daredevil thing, Daredevil not being the trailer. It's like, guys, come on, really? Like, could, would it be cool if Matt Murda, if if Charlie Cox is Daredevil is in No Way Home, yeah, it'd be very cool. I, I would love that. I would I would definitely geek out over that. But if it doesn't happen, is that going to ruin the movie for me? No. So can we stop being outraged about people that don't appear in trailers? It's a trailer, okay? It's like practice in sports, okay? It's not the real game here. It, we're talking about practice. And if you know that quote, then you're an NBA fan, apparently. I'm just saying, don't get upset about these things when it comes to trailers. Wait until December the 17th when Spider-Man No Way Home comes out, and then you'll have a reason to either be happy or upset, and we could talk about it then. Here's something that I've actually really been looking forward to, and if you look at our website, downandnerdypodcast.com, you already knew that a Billy the Kid series was going to be coming to Epics in 2022, and we finally got the first teaser for this thing. Now, if you're wondering who's behind this, it's going to be Michael Hurst, who is the, he's the guy that wrote Vikings, he wrote the Tudors as well, so he's going to be the creator of this series. Now, playing Billy the Kid is British actor Tom Blythe, and I thought to myself for a second, so the American outlaw, Billy the Kid, is going to be played by a Brit, and then I remembered that Billy the Kid is actually, William Bonney is an Irish immigrant, so it kind of makes sense, even though at the same time, 
I don't know. And, and I'm sure that the, the, the Tom's worked on the accent and all these other things, and I'm sure it'll be fine. Daniel Weber, also a part of this cast as well, who plays Jesse Evans, who, of course, the leader of the Seven Rivers Gang. So and, and there's a history there between Jesse and Billy, and that's something I'm sure will be explored in this series. And they were talking about the early years of Billy the Kid, too. So it just feels like a great time for Westerns, right? Especially a good Western. And we don't really have a good Western series right now. We, I mean, you had Westworld that was kind of a Western, but not. So I think Billy the Kid, this is a really good time to have a Billy the Kid series. I'm really excited for this. We know it's coming out in 2022. We don't know when just yet. So definitely going to be keeping an eye on what's going on with this. Here's something that I didn't expect, but I'm very, very happy about actually. And that is that Dark Horse Comics has apparently gotten the license back for Star Wars comics. Now, before you get too excited or too nervous, these comics are not leaving Marvel at all. This is actually a deal between Dark Horse and Walt Disney Publishing and Lucasfilm to bring some Star Wars comics back to Dark Horse in the spring of 2022. Now, remember, this license was held by IDW. They were doing Star Wars Adventures and they were doing some High Republic stuff as well, all ages comics. And that is the realm in which Dark Horse is going to be creating comics for Star Wars. Now, I was really bummed when this license left Dark Horse in the first place because Dark Horse was really putting out some good Star Wars comics. Not that Marvel hasn't, but Dark Horse certainly was. Like that they had a really good Darth Maul comic and several other stories as well. And they just did a really good job with it. But then when, you know, when Lucasfilm was bought out by Disney, what did you expect? Sort of thing, right? You kind of knew that eventually Marvel would start publishing Star Wars stories and that it would be bye-bye for Dark Horse. So it was kind of a bummer because it was a, a big seller. For Dark Horse too, obviously, but Dark Horse survived, and and now here we are doing here they are making all ages comics and graphic novels for Star Wars again. So it kind of comes full circle, and this could be a partnership that I think is going to benefit both sides. And let's face it, as much as I hate to say it out loud because I love them and always have, IDW is on the downswing right now, and Dark Horse is certainly on the upswing for a lot of reasons, not just in comics but in entertainment as well. You see more growth from Dark Horse than you do from IDW. And if you're Walt Disney Publishing and you're Marvel, you've got to look at that and say, look, who do we want partnering with us on this stuff? And the Star Wars stories, quite frankly, from IDW had gotten a little stale. And I think the Dark Horse can kind of bring a fresh new look to it. Maybe a little bit of edginess to some of these all-ages titles as well. Just because it's an all-ages title doesn't mean it can't be edgy. Okay. So let's keep that in mind. And Dark Horse does that fine line really, really well. So I'm really excited to see what Dark Horse is going to be bringing to the table when they have more Star Wars comics and graphic novels coming in the spring of 2022. Real quickly, I wanted to touch on this as well because it just kind of made me laugh. We know there the, the search for the next James Bond is going to be happening eventually. Okay? We don't know who it's going to be. I, I'm of the mind that it'll probably be a name that we don't know or don't know really well just because that seems to be how they pick James Bond characters. You haven't really had mainline actors play James Bond 
very often in the modern era anyway. You could make the case that Pierce Brosnan was a mainline actor. I understand that. I, you go back to Sean Connery. Okay, that, that was a while ago. But Daniel Craig wasn't a household name when he took over the role of Bond, at least in my opinion. Anyway, but I digress. I bring this up because two major stars in Hollywood both apparently want to be the next James Bond. The first one is Dwayne The Rock Johnson. And I understand that The Rock wants to play pretty much everyone that has ever been created at any point in every franchise. He just wants to be a part of as much things as he can. And because he loves these things. I'm I'm not saying he's doing it just, you know, collect roles. I'm saying that he's truly passionate about a lot of different things and that this is something that he wants to do. And I understand why he wants to do it. In this in this interview with Esquire, he says that that's, you know, that's on his list. That's something he'd really like to do. And obviously I'm paraphrasing. I don't see it, though. I really really don't see it. Would he have the care would he have the charisma? Sure. But the suaveness, the debonair type style I just don't think he has that. And I don't think you necessarily want to change James Bond to have him fit the rock style, to to fit Dwayne the Rock Johnson's style. I don't know that you do that. Obviously, he he's it's not like he plays the same character every time, but there's a smoothness and a suaveness to James Bond that I don't know can be executed by Dwayne Johnson well enough. He would certainly have the snark, he would certainly have the charisma, but I don't, and uh, the action chops, absolutely. I just don't know that he has that it factor that he could bring to a character like James Bond. So that's just my opinion. The other one I think is probably really interesting, and this was brought up by Jake Blanton, our battle on, excuse me, in an interview with GQ, that apparently Tom Holland wants to play James Bond as well. Apparently he talks about it quite a bit and has talked about it on set when they've been filming these Spider-Man movies. And again, it's one of those things where, okay, Tom Holland is not, you know, he, he's just one of those guys that's going to kind of maybe look young forever, it seems like, right? And if you were going to go maybe really young James Bond, then I don't know, maybe that would work. Is that something you really want to do? Though, I don't know. See, I think that that's another one I just don't see. And and I think that partially because I think that he kind of lacks the things that, that Dwayne Johnson actually has, right? Not that I think that Tom Holland's a suave dude, but you could almost kind of see how he could pull that off, right, in a certain sense. He could maybe be suave if he had to be, but he's always going to be a younger guy. And it's always going to feel like a younger guy, at least right now anyway. If you're going to have him play James Bond right now, that to me is how it would feel. So if you were doing really young James Bond, maybe. I don't know. But again, this is just one I don't really see that that it really makes a whole lot of sense. Quite frankly, if I'm being honest, I'd almost want to see an old man Bond kind of thing, right? Give me an older James Bond because we've seen younger James, young-ish James Bond. We've seen seasoned James Bond. What about just old James Bond? How would that look? You know, like an old man Logan style James Bond movie. What would that look like? I'm just really curious, first of all, who you cast for that. And second of all, 
how that would look because we've done everything else. If we're going to do this, I, if, I quite frankly, again, I'm going to say this one more time. I would just shelve the character for a while entirely. Let Lashana Lynch play the 007 character. Let that breathe a little bit and then see where you're at down the road and who's going to be the next James Bond because maybe we haven't even met who's going to be the new James Bond yet. Maybe there's just someone out there that is worthy of this role that we don't even know about yet that we, that we might miss out on if you rush to this decision. So, again, I don't see it from those two. Maybe it'll happen. Maybe it won't. It just feels like if you cast one of those guys as James Bond, it's as a cash grab type of situation, and that's just never been the style of James Bond. So I'm not sure they're really going to be doing that either. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to David Glasser for joining me this week to talk about the Mayor of Kingstown, which you can watch right now on Paramount+. Plus. Also, you can always find out what we're doing at downandnerdypodcast.com. Follow along on social media as well, at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram, and at downandnerdy on Facebook. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly, and be good to your fellow nerds. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.